Would you turn your Bible, please, to 2, verse 15. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15. this is a verse of scripture that most people here could quote by memory. If you need to look at it, look at it. And I want to read it once and then we'll ask all of us to read it together. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Amen. Now let's all say it or read it together. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. May we pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this beautiful word from God's book. We pray that the Holy Spirit will encourage our hearts and speak to us through it. May thy Spirit do his work of convincing and convicting and converting and comforting. And may this be a day marked by God as a turning point in somebody's life. Turning from hell to heaven. Turning from wasted years to a years of investment for thee. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> Sidlow Baxter was born in Australia. He was early in his life taken to England and there was exposed to some tremendous spiritual truths and was converted to Christ and later studied at Spurgeon College. Sidlow Baxter wrote a book called Mark these men. And in that book, he spoke of Saul and Paul and Lazarus of Bethany and the rich young ruler and Simeon and Elijah and Daniel and Elisha. And over and over again, he wrote of these men as real people who stepped out of the scriptures, people just like you and me, with all the problems and foibles and weaknesses and strengths that we have. He pointed out that these are real men who had real experiences with God and profited from that experience. And by the same token, he mentioned that some of the men he discussed came near having experiences with God and rejected truth and forever lived their lives in the shallows and are spending an eternity without God and without hope. We're like that. We're no different from the people who wrote the scriptures. Elijah, Malachi, David the psalmist, Solomon the wise man, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Luke, Paul, all the others. 
But there's something I would like to lay on our hearts this morning that was on Paul's heart when he wrote to Timothy shortly before he was to go to heaven. You recall that Paul had been converted on the Appian, on the Damascus road outside the city of Damascus. He had seen a light and heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, who are you, sir? The voice said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And in that moment, Saul of Tarsus became Paul the great missionary as he yielded his life to the will of God with these words, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Some years later, he was able to write saying, whereupon I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. And when he neared the end, he wrote to Timothy. He was in a Roman prison. He said, Timothy, do your best to come before winter. And in parentheses, unwritten, were these thoughts, if you do not come before winter, there's no use in coming. I won't be here when spring comes again. Do your best to come before winter. And then he said, I am now ready. The time of my departure is at hand. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them who love his appearing. But before he said that, he said, Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so I feel impressed this morning to bring just a brief message on this thought, workman unashamed. Workman unashamed. If we're to be workmen unashamed, I'd like to lay on our hearts some characteristics that we need and I think if we read between the lines in the book of 2 Timothy, we can see these thoughts coming through, though they're never mentioned as such. Perhaps there are veiled references to them. If we're to be workmen unashamed, able to come to the end of life and say with Paul, I have kept the faith, I have finished my course, I'm expectantly looking forward to the glory then we need the vision of an Isaiah. Isaiah was that court prophet. And you know the story of Isaiah. He was in the temple the year Uzziah died. He was kin to Uzziah the king. He was of royal lineage. And he saw a vision of the greatness of God. And the scripture says his train was lifted up and and the whole house was filled with his glory. And he heard those heavenly beings saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah caught a vision of the holiness, the glory, the greatness of God. And he bowed on his knees and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I've seen the king, I will die. And then there flew one of those heavenly beings and touched him. And he said, Isaiah, you're not going to die. He touched his lips and he was cleansed. And immediately, Isaiah heard a voice, who will I send? Who will go for us? 
And Isaiah said, here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me. If we're to be the kind of men and women that will be unashamed when we get to the end of the way, then we need to have that kind of vision. The vision that Isaiah had right at the beginning of our lives, and today is not too late for anyone. If you're willing to look to God and see that he's more than just the man upstairs, that the Lord God rules and reigns in this world. He is the sovereign of the universe. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we dare not walk into his presence with tawdry, dirty feet. One of the symbolic meanings when Jesus met in the upper room and began to wash the disciples' feet. And incidentally, that was not an ordinance. It does not picture the redeeming work of Christ. It pictures the need in every one of our lives to be washed and cleansed again and again. And Peter said, Lord, don't do that. Lord, and what he really meant was, Lord, I'm not worthy. Don't wash my feet. And, and, and Jesus said, uh, Sir, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing of me, no part in me. Oh, and then Peter said, Oh, well, Lord, wash me all over. And Jesus said, You don't need that. You've already been washed. You just need to have your feet clean. What he meant was, we get dirty walking around in the cesspools of life. We get dirty when we rub elbows with the things of the world and the cheap and tawdry, ugly, barnyard things of this world. And we need to come again and again to Jesus and say, Jesus, cleanse me. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it takes a vision of God's holiness to see that. I don't know how many people I've talked with about their need of Jesus. And somebody will say, well, I'm pretty good. I'm about as good as those people down the street or good as my next door neighbor. And he goes to church every day. And, and I'm about as good as some of the people that come to your church, preacher. And you know, see, they have no vision whatsoever of their unworthiness before God. Because men and women, we do not compare ourselves to each other. The question is not, are you as good as that person sitting next to you? Or are you as good as that person that goes to the church over across the way? Or are you as good as your mother or daddy or brother or sister or husband or wife or son or daughter? The question is, have you compared yourself to Jesus lately? Have you seen Jesus lately? And if we're going to be workmen unashamed, we need a vision of the glory of God in all of his beauty, in all of his holiness. And then we will cry out, oh Lord, I need your cleansing. I need your fullness. I need something I do not have. I'm dissatisfied with myself. Jesus is the great interrupter to the status quo. Not only is he the counselor and the comforter, he is the great disturber. Do not think that if you've come to Christ that he'll constantly whisper peace to your heart. He may whisper a volcano in your soul. There may come a tornado so that we can see our need to rearrange some of our pet plans and our feverish, foolish ways. We need a vision, a vision of God in all of his beauty, in all of his glory. 
And Isaiah in chapter 22, verse 1, spoke of the burden of the valley of vision. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, there's a burden when you get a vision. When you get a vision of the Lord in all of His beauty and all of His holiness, there comes a burden in your soul, a burden of a desire for something you don't have, something better than you are. And you begin to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to be like you. Oh, to be like thee. Oh, to be like thee. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin, I want to resign. And I want to serve you. I want Jesus to be on the throne of my life. And then when we get close to Jesus, and we have a vision of him, we also have a vision of his heart. And the great heart of Jesus is breaking for the things of this earth that are out of harmony and out of context with God. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 35, lift up your eyes. Are not the fields white already to harvest? And we need the vision of Jesus. You know the context of that story. Uh, he had just spoken to that woman at the Samaritan well, and, and uh, he said, now, uh, you go call your husband. She said, well, I don't have a husband. And the Lord said, that's right, you had five of them. The man you're living with right now, you didn't bother to marry him. You had tried one, he didn't satisfy you. Tried another, he didn't satisfy you. The point is, she had tried everything, everything, and nothing satisfied. And friends, that's the way with the cesspools of this world. That's the way with the wells of water in this world. They don't satisfy. And so Jesus spoke to her about her innermost need, and she perceived that this was the Christ. And she set her pot, water pots down and ran into the city. And she said, come, see a man that told me everything that I've ever done. Is not this the Messiah? And they began to come out of, the, out of that little city of Sychar. I don't know how many. I don't know how many lived there. But they all started coming. And Jesus said to his disciples, look, lift up your eyes. Are not the fields white already to harvest? He was talking about those people coming out there. And friend, when you look to Jesus and you get a vision of Jesus and the vision of Jesus gets on your soul and on your heart, you're going to see people, precious people who need God. Oh, there are people in our city. There's a mission field moving to Bowling Green this week. 14 to 15,000 students. Some of them coming from various places in the world coming to this city. Somebody said to me one day, well, friend, I can't go as a missionary to Japan or Korea or I can't go to Africa. I can't go to South America. I wonder if you could walk up to Western University and find somebody to love there and let Jesus just love them through you. Let the love of Jesus pour out of your life into that life and be a friend, a friend like Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Why don't we be that kind of friend to others when they walk through the valley and when they go through all kinds of problems and burdens? When we have the vision of an Isaiah, we're going to see things through the eyes of Jesus. There was no preacher in the Old Testament who preached more about Jesus. Five to eight hundred years before Jesus was ever born, than did Isaiah. Isaiah is the one who said he was wounded for our transgressions, looking to the cross. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep had gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord had to lay on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah was preaching the glorious gospel hundreds of years before the Lord came. And if we're going to have a vision, if we're going to be workmen unashamed, we have to have the vision that Isaiah had who saw a world in need of Jesus. And he gave them Jesus like nobody else in the pages of the Old Testament. But secondly, not only do we need the vision of Isaiah, in my opinion, we need the virtue of a, of a, of a Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. He was sold into slavery in Egypt. This story is told in Genesis 39. And when he got to Egypt, he lived in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife was somehow attracted to that young man, 17 or 18 years old. And she laid traps and snares for him and finally came out openly asking him to lie with her and commit adultery with her. And Joseph had so much virtue in his life, he had seen the king. And he said, no, how can I do this ugly thing in God's sight? And Joseph refrained from committing sin against Potiphar with Potiphar's wife. And finally one day he fled out of the house and Potiphar's wife told a lie on Joseph and Joseph was in prison for 13 years. Listen, if we're going to be workmen unashamed when we get to the end of the way, you and I need the virtue of a Joseph who have faced all the, the temptations and the lusts, the lust for power, the lust of selfishness, the lust of sex, the lust of money, all of these lusts, and have allowed the beautiful virtue of Jesus to flow into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit so that not in our own strength can we say no, but in the strength of God we can say, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. If we're going to be workmen unashamed when we get to the end of the way. Thirdly, we need to be a voice. If we're going to be workmen unashamed, and I'm speaking largely to Christians, if we're going to be workmen unashamed, then we need to be a voice, not an echo but a voice. You go out and say, hey! Hear the echo? All that comes back from the walls is an echo. But when you stand on your two feet, and you take a stand against sin, you become a voice. And I think of John the Baptist. They came to John and said, who are you? Are you the Messiah that we should look for? Who are you? John said, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I'm a voice. And beloved, we need to be a voice for God in a world that hates God. In John, in Matthew rather, chapter 3, listen to this. In Matthew the third chapter, we have John that precious man of God. When the Pharisees 
Uh, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits befitting repentance. Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. But now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the oven. What he's saying is, John said, I'm a voice representing God, and I want to tell you what God wants to say to you. Oh, how the world needs to hear what God says. Amen. Not just what we think, not just our own opinions, but what does God say? When that group came down to hear John the Baptist preach, wouldn't it have been interesting if he said, well, thank you for coming to hear me preach. I'm honored that you came today and I wouldn't want to step on anybody's toes. I wouldn't want to hurt anybody, so I want to find out all the good things you are and I'll give you sugar and, and uh, coating and I'll give you uh, cream donuts and all that. He didn't say that at all. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You're a generation of vipers and snakes. You have sin in your lives. Now, I don't think God puts a premium on us going out and insulting people or trying to buttonhole people and insult them in, in any way. We need to win them to ourselves so we can transfer that winning love to Jesus. But we dare not compromise. Amen. I was shocked when our governor said he backed liquor in the state parks. Amen. And he's a Baptist. And I don't know how you feel about that. And I don't mean to be offensive to you. I love you, but it really doesn't matter how you feel about that, in my opinion. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Amen. And it's never right to make liquor so easily obtained that anybody, anywhere, any moment can get it. Amen. We need to take stands. Amen. We need to have the voice of John crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. When people think of you, they need to think of somebody that stands for something. Amen. Not just some kind of a jellyfish. You go down to Florida and you, off the coast you can find some little old jellyfish like an amoeba. It has no shape or form at all. Whatever, whatever it lands on, it takes that shape. And there are some people like that. They have no shape, no form, no convictions, no backbone. They just wiggle and wobble and wobbly all around and they have no stand for anything. If we're going to be workmen unashamed, standing in the presence of the king one day giving a report, then we need to be a voice, a voice crying in a dark world, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Again, if we're going to be workmen unashamed, we need to have the vigilance of Habakkuk. Now Habakkuk was that man from the Old Testament He heard that God was going to allow a heathen nation to destroy his nation. Now Habakkuk was a prophet of Judah. Judah at least had some form of love for God. They had the Bible, they had the temple, they had all kinds of religious relics and religious symbols, but their heart was not in it. And because their heart was not in it, they went through the motions. They came to church on church day and they sang their pretty songs and they put their little tips in for God and then they went out and lived like they wanted to live. And Habakkuk and Nehemiah and Ezra and others went before God and said, Oh God, I am ashamed. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And they confessed their sins to God. 
But then when Habakkuk heard that God was going to allow Babylon, a heathen nation, to destroy Judah, he didn't take any pride in that. Habakkuk was a strongly patriotic man. And he began to argue with God. He said, God, God, you're more righteous than that. Why, here's a heathen nation that hates you, doesn't even believe there's a God, and you're going to allow them to come in and destroy us and punish us? Lord, you wouldn't do that. And God said, uh, Habakkuk, you just shut up. <laughs> you just shut up. I'm going to do a thing that you will not understand, though I told you, so I can't tell you in advance. And then we have the vigilance of Habakkuk in chapter 2. He says, I will stand upon my watch and set myself upon the tower, and I will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. In other words, Habakkuk had vigilance to just stand and watch and wait and see what God was going to do. He didn't cave in. He didn't curl up in a knot and die when he didn't understand something. He just watched and waited and listened. You and I need to stand on the portals. And when all kinds of problems come our way that we do not understand, when all kinds of things come sweeping in like the tides of the ocean and we cannot understand it, we're almost overwhelmed, we need to say, I'm going to climb up on that tower and I'm going to watch to see what God's going to do because God is in charge somehow through it all. I don't understand, but God is in charge and he's taking care of it all. If we're going to be workmen unashamed, then we need to have the vigilance of Habakkuk who watched from his tower. And last of all, we need to have the verity of the Apostle Paul. Paul said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 6. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. The time of my departure is at hand. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. You know why Paul could say that? Because he was there when he got it. He was there when he got Jesus in his heart. Amen. He wasn't some kind of a fuzzy-wuzzy type of emotional tear experience where he had a, like catching a June bug and he said, boy, I caught it 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It's never a day like it in my life. Never a day like it before or after. Never a day like it. It was wonderful. But now it means nothing at all. Paul wasn't like that. Paul said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him. Amen. First of all, he committed his soul to Jesus. He committed his sins to Jesus. He committed his failures to Jesus. He committed his pride to Jesus. He committed his glorying to Jesus. He committed his defeats to Jesus. He committed his, def his, his, uh, dis dis his uh, things in his life where he became depressed and discouraged. He committed all that to Jesus. One day, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times, God, remove this thing from me. God said, no, I'm not going to do it, but I'll give you grace sufficient. Amen. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul took that and committed that to Jesus. And then at the end of the way, he was able to say, I know that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Oh, beloved, if you want to be a workman unashamed, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. 
Put your life on the line for God. Put your gifts and talents out there so God can use them, and He will use them. He may have to take them and break them and make them and mold them. You may be crushed because God specializes in picking up broken pieces and starting over again. But then God can fashion that crushed thing into something beautiful for His glory. You want to be a workman unashamed, standing in the presence of the Lord, giving your report to the Lord of glory at the end of the way, after the toils and the heat of the day, after the last sunset and out there on the sunrise tomorrow in the glories of heaven, then I can encourage you to commit something to Jesus now. You can't be there if you can't look back and say, I remember when I gave it to him. I gave it all to him. Have you done it? Has there been a definite time when you gave your soul, your sins, your life to him? Do it now. Do it now. And then you'll be able to say, there's a crown of righteousness over there for those who trust him and love him. Workmen unashamed, Sunday school teachers, training union leaders, deacons, teachers, preachers, Christians. I'd like to be part of that number when the saints go marching in who will be able to stand there in humility, knowing that I don't deserve to be there, but be able to do what Paul said, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman unashamed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege and honor of studying the wonderful Word of God and seeing these truths. Make them real in our hearts in these next few moments as we commit what we've experienced to Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. Will you stand, please? Come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord. Only trust Him, only trust Him. Jerry, what number is that? 235, number 235. I hope everybody will sing that song, 235. Now, if you found the song, would you look at me just a moment? Number 235. This is God's invitation. It isn't mine, it's the Lord's. And I would encourage you this morning to take a stand for Christ, to begin to grow for God. You can't grow until, first of all, you've planted the seed. The seed is your faith planted in the garden of God in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he was raised from the grave that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Would you put your trust in him this morning? Drop the seed of your faith in Jesus and say, I trust him. Sink or swim, live or die, heaven or hell, I trust him. And then step out and commit your life to him. Some of you have already trusted in Jesus, but you've never com committed your life publicly. You've never followed the Lord in baptism. You need to come. Some of you have done that, but you're members of another church somewhere, and God wants you at Glendale. I encourage you to come today and to commit your life to God, to serve Him through this church while you live in this city. There are others who need to recommit their life and faith to God to serve Him. Would you begin today a new walk with the Lord while we begin to sing, Who will come first for the King?